Hi, and welcome to another episode on a quick dose of CE, MLI's podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm Kristen Gussick, and on today's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Bernhard Ludwig, an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Medical University of Vienna, Austria, and also Dr. Thomas Forst, a teaching professional for internal medicine and endocrinology at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany. In this podcast, we will discuss the ADA-EASD 2022 consensus report and the key data that led to trisepatide being included. We will also talk about practical tips for initiating trisepatide, optimizing its dose, and who may or may not be a good candidate for this first-in-class therapy. We will also talk a little bit about diabetes remission, a term that seems to come with its own little bit of controversy. I'm excited that you have taken the time to join us to learn more as you continue to strive for the best outcomes for your patients. Now let's begin. If you wish to participate in this activity for credit, visit www.mlieducation.org forward slash a quick dose. You're listening to a quick dose of CE, MLI's podcast series for healthcare professionals. We will be joined by leading experts to discuss current issues that are facing the practice of medicine, blending objectivity and consensus into highly personal decisions, celebrating the uniqueness of our patients. Let's get the conversation started. Thank you so much, Dr. Ludwig and Dr. Forrest for joining us. I know we hear so much about the growing twindemic of type 2 diabetes and obesity, but really it comes down to clinical inertia. How do we intensify treatment earlier? Is that something that's really a problem in other countries? I mean, in America, doctors, you have a a patient at eight and they just keep them on metformin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's cheap. It's cheap. Yeah, and you don't want to do, you tell the patients just come in, come again in three months, lose weight, do exercise and then get out of my office. Right, (laughs) right. And then if if it really creases it, then you say, okay, now I have to do something. But the cost of these other drugs are huge. Like they yeah. got to get something worked sure. out. Well, in America, is it not so much in the... The cost of complications is very high. Yeah, that's the I problem. Know. Yeah. These much, are not the higher. same payers sometimes. Right. The different payers. One pay for medication and outpatient, at least in Austria, for outpatient services and the other one for inpatient. Right. And they don't care about inpatient costs. Mm-hmm. They only a very small amount. This is why why they want to push the patients yeah, out of their practices and into the hospitals. It's yeah, and a lot of wow. colleagues, I think, still believe you can manage it with lifestyle modification yes. if the patient already yeah. wants to. But this is not true. Yeah. I'm a dietitian and we've preached lifestyle modification for years and it's, it's not working. Yeah, we have studies showing that it's very hard to achieve in a study, but when you stop the study, exactly. it's going up. And if you if you look one year after, yeah. more than 90% are yeah. back to their original weight. I know, right, yeah. So given the growing twindemic of diabetes and obesity, how do you think, Dr. Ludwig, that we can overcome the clinical inertia and intensify treatment earlier? Actually, the clinical inertia is a real problem. And this has been a problem for many, many years. Many doctors still regard obesity and diabetes as only lifestyle-related diseases, but there's a genetic background for obesity, for diabetes as well. And of course, we have to focus on 
lifestyle changes, nutrition and exercise. But we have to acknowledge this is a chronic disease and we need a chronic treatment. And we haven't had perfect drugs so far, leading to weight loss and improving diabetes, but also not at the extent of hypoglycemia, at the cost of hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. So I think now we have drugs which promote weight loss, which have excellent data on diabetes control with no risk of hypoglycemia, but we have to use them. And most of the time we try to persuade the patient still promote dietary counseling and exercise training. But I think now we need to use these drugs we have now. They're very potent drugs, but they're expensive, of course. And, mm-hmm. and we need to find a way to give those drugs to as many patients as necessary. And this will be a, quite a challenge in the future. And trisepatide obviously is now approved in several countries. Uh, Dr. Forst, can you explain to us I think there's a lot of confusion. How do you explain the additive or complementary effects of dual agonism? Mm. Yes, this is a, a new drug. It's a one peptide, which is able to address two different receptors. One is a GLP-1 receptor. The other is a DIP receptor. Uh, and this indeed has a couple of complementary or additive effects. So you see both improve the beta cell function, uh, both have an effect on alpha cell function, uh, but then with GIP you also have um, more effects with regard to weight reduction. Uh, and you have, and I think this is something which really makes a difference, uh, you have a diff- additional effects in the lipid metabolism, uh, which are not driven by GLP-1. So this is something unique for the GIP component in this drug. And this, from my perspective, might be something which, together with all the other effects, might be able to have an effect on arteriosclerosis uh, and thereby reducing, hopefully, the cardiovascular endpoints. You recently just gave a talk, and one of the things that I learned uh, from you, I was surprised that GLP-1-RA has kind of uh, maybe nausea as a side effect, but you had explained that GIP actually is anti-emetic. Can you explain that? True. That's what we have learned with GLP-1 receptor agonists is that they have this gastrointestinal side effects, they have nausea, they make vomiting. And what is known from, let's say, at least from experimental data from animal studies, is that GIP has anti-emetic effects. Uh, So maybe this anti-emetic effects of GIP antagonize some of this gastrointestinal side effects, uh, it's it's not able to totally avoid them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you look into the clinical study program, uh, we see that tirsepatide, the dual agonist, is much more effective with regard to glucose control, with regard to weight reduction, but does not increase the gastrointestinal side effects. And this might be due to the anti-emetic effect of chip. That's really great. Going back, Dr. Ludwig, to talking about initiating the practical aspects of trisepatide. How do you initiate it? How do you dose escalate? How do you manage its adverse effects? How do people really use it? 
you can use this appetite in addition to existing diabetes drugs, except of DP4 inhibitors. This doesn't make any sense, mm -hmm. but you can use it as monotherapy as well. And you have to titrate it starting with 2.5 milligrams. And we have at least in Europe, three therapeutic doses, which is five, 10 and 15 milligrams. And sometimes you might have a very good efficacy with five milligrams and you stay on five milligrams when you reach the goals and you have to have an individual goal with the patient. Okay. And I think from the studies, we see that 50% of patients will become normal glycemic, that's termed remission, despite having a long diabetes duration of more than 80 years and having an HbA1c of 8.2%. So long diabetes duration and bad control, uh, still you get remission in 50% of the patients. So I think this is very encouraging. And if you use this drug in obese patients, type 2 diabetes, earlier on, you probably get most of them into what we can call remission. Uh, the side effects are mainly nausea. Nausea may be vomiting and you have a slow titration. They usually occur during this titration period. And of course, you can first of all have some dietary counseling and the other possibility is to step back, you know, with the dose. Okay. But this is what we do with the GLP-1 receptor agonists for a long time. And I think we're looking at just diabetes patients with obesity. What about just obesity? All these patients that maybe haven't developed diabetes yet, but are... Yeah, we do have a very good amount of study now being published, but it's not licensed for obesity without diabetes so far. We expect that to happen. It's the most potent drug we have for weight loss. It's the most potent drug we have for diabetes control. It's even much more potent than basal insulin, as we have seen in the SERPAS-3 study. Uh, but for obesity, it's very potent. And I think you come close to the range you see with bariatric surgery without the side effects of bariatric surgery. It's interesting you use the word remission. I know that that's kind of a controversial word. Are you uh, able to kind of explain a little bit more about what remission is or how you see it and why it might be controversial? Yeah, there is a controversy about remission because uh, some people say if you use the term remission, you must not treat the patient anymore with some medication. Mm -hmm. So bariatric surgeons, metabolic surgeons, have this term remission for many, many years, but the, the bypass is still in place. So there's still ongoing treatment. Oncologists, rheumatologists use the term remission when patients are on treatment and have no symptoms anymore or no occurrence of disease. I think we have a some, somehow sophisticated, I would say, discussion. And uh, I think if you don't want to term it remission, let's name it uh, normal glycemia. Or let's term it therapeutic remission, which implies that you have remission with a concurrent medication. Uh, but diabetes is a chronic disease. And if you stop treatment, it will come again. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's like obesity. Mm -hmm. It's a chronic disease. It needs chronic treatment. And as we see from two years data, tisapatite is, is still very efficient during the course, at least of two years, that I would expect long, even longer. And normal glycemia is relieving the pressure on the uh, insula, uh, insula on the islet cell. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very important for long-term remission in patients with diabetes. Okay. Did you have anything to add? Yeah, I'm absolutely on this argumentation. 
you see diabetes and as you mentioned diabetes and obesity are both uh, chronic diseases um, and we need to treat them also if we stop diabetes treatment glucose levels will start to increase again and right. that's the same what happens with body weight in obesity so in the 2022 consensus report the ADA and EASD guidelines um, for glucose control as well as weight management Uh, we see semaglutide and trisepatide in there. What are some of the key data that led to it being added to the guidelines? And what are those implications for clinicians? I mean, the guidelines for the first time are somehow individualizing therapy based on complications like cardiovascular disease, uh, like heart failure, mm -hmm. kidney disease. Then you should use those drugs having shown data in CBOTs or endpoint studies, such as GP1 receptor agonists and SGT2 inhibitors. Mm -hmm. But if you go uh, and look specifically at the patient, at the relation between obesity, overweight, and diabetes, it's much, it's much more focused on weight loss because we know from bariatric surgery, from studies with diet, that weight loss can lead to significant improvement in diabetes control up to remission or normal glycemia. And there we have two strong uh, actors, which is semaglutide, which we know, which is around for some time, and now disapatide, but disapatide is much more potent than semaglutide. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is the drug we use for patients who really need to lose a lot of weight in order to achieve better diabetes control. Okay, so opposite of that, are there patients then that shouldn't be put on those uh, drugs to manage their diabetes? I mean, basically you can expect that everybody will lose some weight. I mean, what we see and uh, the heavier you are, you, the more weight you lose. So if you're a little bit above normal weight, then probably you won't lose as much weight, but we don't have the data yet. We have to analyze the, the studies, look at different categories, uh, who loses how much and what about a patient with BMI of 26, 25, how much will he lose weight? I think this we need to see, but I think there are of course patients who are lean, who are older, where you expect if they lose weight, they might become frail. Probably there you need to be cautious, but the majority of patients with type 2 diabetes is obese. Okay, any last thoughts? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's a reduction of obesity. We do not have a drug which have shown stronger effects on, uh, on body weight Uh, compared to tisipatide and obesity is not only a driver of diabetes, it's a driver of hypertension, it's a, a driver of lipid disorders, uh, of inflammation and all together. Sleep disorders, right? Exactly. And all together makes the increased risk of cardiovascular complications. Uh, and we expect that the, the sum of all these aspects of all this Uh, efficacy we see in these different aspects will improve the prognosis of, of these patients. I heard one time, if you treat somebody's glucose, you treat their diabetes. If you treat their weight, you're treating the whole person. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Quick Dose of CE, MLI's podcast series for healthcare professionals. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. You can also subscribe at www.mlieducation.org. 
forward slash a quick dose to be notified when new episodes are released and even provide your own suggestions for future episodes. We'll see you next time.